welcome back to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and today is episode 25, From Villains to Heroes, Wrapping Up Caesar's Campaign. So, sorry about this last episode, but while I was editing on the Monday before, I realized I had left the fan on when recording. Now, to me at the time, I would not have noticed this white noise, but... On the podcast, it sounds like I'm standing right next to a helicopter talking to you. So, I re-recorded. Then that re-recording got corrupted. So, I just said, screw it, and combined last week's and this week's episode. So, really, this is episode 25 and 26 combined. But we're just going to call it episode 25. It's just been a pain. Now, before we actually get into today's episode, I want to take a minute and talk to you about something I received last week. Now, if you followed me on Twitter, on Facebook, then you already know about this. But if you don't, then I really wanted to share the story with you. I received an interesting piece of mail. Um, When I opened it, I saw a rock inside, and I was very confused. At first, I thought it was a rock, and when I took it out, I realized it was just a chunk of concrete and again really confused as to why I was getting concrete I didn't know if this was like a death threat or just a way of saying hello in Oklahoma I wasn't sure but then I noticed the note inside this piece of concrete came from the Berlin Wall as it was being taken down 30 years ago the small piece of concrete a fan of the show had been keeping for 30 years, and he sent it to me as a gift. Now, this small piece, if you saw it out nowhere, then, you know, you wouldn't think anything about it. It's just a piece of concrete. But because it was part of the wall, it represents so much to Berlin and to Germany. This piece of concrete represents an end to the division and to disunity that had kept them apart for 40 years. It marked the beginning of the end of the Cold War. And it is the second chance that Germany received and has been striving to prove itself worthy of ever since. And so while I was very confused and concerned when I first opened it and saw what it was, it has been one of the sweetest gifts I got for my birthday and for the show. I thank you very much for it. So, John, thank you so much. It's uh, one of, been one of the greatest moments for the podcast on Germany. Just receiving that small piece of concrete. And it has been added to the collection. If you'd like to see a picture of it, you can go check out our Twitter at Podcast on Germany. And then you can also check out our Facebook, Podcast on Germany. All right. So... Now we'll go to today's actual episode. And we're dealing with quite a lot. We are starting with Julius Caesar post Brian Crossing, and we're going all the way to the end of the Gallic campaigns. Now we're not covering everything in that time period in this episode. We're going to be skipping around because a lot of it doesn't pertain to Germans and Germany. After all, it's a campaign about Caesar trying to establish rule in Gaul, modern-day France. 
doesn't really pertain all that much to Germany until Germans get involved. If you want to have a better understanding of what Caesar's doing in Gaul, then I highly recommend checking out the French History Podcast. They are right now discussing the Gallic Wars. And because France is Gaul, he's going to be spending a lot more time on that than I am. If you'd like to know what Caesar's doing in Britain, then I highly recommend checking out the British History Podcast. He does a pretty good job of explaining what Caesar's campaign was like in Britain. However, don't give up on my show. That's just if you want to learn more about Caesar's Gallic campaigns outside of it pertaining to Germany. But as a recap, last we talked, Caesar had crossed the Rhine, he had burned some empty villages, and then he quickly ran back across the Rhine, burning the bridge down. 18-day trip into Germany. Real quick. And we had talked about how while Caesar had written this off as a success, well, we could actually see that it wasn't. So while Caesar is dealing with Britannia, and then he goes and deals with the Adriatic coast, Germans are still involved in Gallic politics. The Germans don't disappear just because Caesar crossed the Rhine one time. As Caesar planned to leave to Britain again, he had to leave three legions and half of his cavalry to defend his supply line and hold the forts in Gaul. Now, the majority of this is his infantry, but he still has to keep 2,000 cavalry in Gaul as well. That's not because he doesn't want this cavalry. I mean, he's taking 2,000 with him. He does use cavalry. But the cavalry helps keep the peace, and they can move quickly from point A to point B in order to deal with possible uprisings, to make sure that everyone's obeying Roman law, and it serves as the only legitimate response available to deal with raiders that would be plaguing Gaul once more. And guess where they're coming from? Germany. This is further proven when during the Ambiorix revolt of the winter of 54 BC, the Romans in Belgium are ambushed by Gallic tribesmen and forced to retreat to their camp. And when they're in this camp, the Gauls come up to them and they claim that not only do they have equal troops, but that they've also hired a large force of Germans. Quote, Germans had been hired and had passed the Rhine and that it, the German force, would arrive in two days. Unquote. Now, this was to be used as a scare tactic on the Romans and hope that they would surrender their camp because of it. But there's more to the story that pertains to the failure of Caesar's Rhine campaign. See, when the Romans hear about this, they hold a meeting. And while discussing their options, the Romans believe that, quote, any force of the Germans, however great, might be encountered by fortified winter quarters that this fact was a proof, and that they had sustained the first assault of the Germans most valiantly, inflicting many wounds upon them, end quote. What does this tell us? It's a little confusing, but what does it tell us? Well, it tells us that these soldiers were used to the Germans crossing the border, 
and that they knew that these camps were typically tough enough that the Germans couldn't break in. Germans were still crossing the Rhine. They were still raiding. They were still attacking the Romans at will. To casually remark that they believed the camp could easily hold off the Germans speaks a lot of the experience these troops in Belgium have had with this German menace. Now, on top of this, these troops were stationed in Belgium and had been part of the forces that had been scattered by Caesar to reduce the threat of overburdening any region due to a bad harvest that year. Now, the way Caesar scatters his troops tells us a lot about the threats to his Gallic conquests. He puts a couple of cohorts along the southern part of the Rhine. These troops can easily get access from troops in Italy and from other regions. They have well-established forts and defenses in the area. And plus, that area is still pretty sore about Ariovistus. And so the Gauls aren't trying to actively get aid right now. He scatters a few legions in central and coastal Gaul, mainly just to hold down the fort and keep the Gauls in check. And in Belgium, he puts five legions. Now, the, his region of Belgium isn't the same as our region of Belgium. It goes all the way up to where the Rhine ends in the Netherlands. But he puts five legions to keep away coastal raiders, to put down internal revolts, and to deal with the massive amount of German raiders and mercenaries that are crossing the Rhine in this region. So, this camp that's under attack by these rebelling Gauls, well, they're not unaccustomed to dealing with German attacks. They've been put here because of the amount of attacks from Germany and from the coastal regions. And now, rebelling Gauls. Now, later on, Caesar mentions that the Gauls send ambassadors to the Germans again in that winter. But they are flat out refused, saying that, quote, they have twice essayed it, the Rhine, in the war with Ariovistus and in the passing of the Tancteri. That fortune was not to be tempted anymore, unquote. This does point out that some of the German tribes, they're not really wanting to risk another war with Rome. They've tried twice, they've failed twice, and the second time, uh, it was pretty bad. But there's another issue. Caesar mentions that these tribes have already tried twice with Ariovistus and the Tancteri. Which means that the Gauls may be relying on too small of a group of tribes from Germany for aid. If these are the same Germans who have served in both of these wars, then they're not using all the tribes available in Germania or even on the Rhine. And these Germans who have fought with Ariovistus, who have fought with the Tancteri, well, they have lost a lot of men. Caesar massacred or enslaved the majority of his enemies in both of those campaigns. 
But those who have survived and probably have raided since, they might be flushed with loot at this point. And if they've played their cards right, they don't need to raid for a while. They're good. So, of course, when an offer comes saying, hey, fight with us against the Romans who've beaten you twice and, you know, see what you get, of course they're going to turn it down. And the Gauls seem to learn from this because these same tribes will go further into Germania looking for aid and they will find it there. So, these German tribesmen who have crossed the Rhine going to help this revolt in Belgium, well, they never arrive in time. Caesar is able to put it down before the Germans show up. So, it probably works out really well for the Germans if they've gotten paid in advance. They simply cross the Rhine here, hey, your boss is beaten. Okay, see y'all. Turns around, go home. But this does prove to Caesar that his first crossing of the Rhine has failed. He's realized everything we've been talking about these last two episodes. That nothing he did in those 18 days stuck. So, what do you do when you fail at something? You do it the exact same way. Don't change a thing. At least that's what Caesar thinks. And so, Caesar crosses the Rhine again. The sequel to our movie. Will it be just as epic as those 18 days? Well, let's find out. First, his objectives are twofold. He needs to make sure that any Gallic rebels who escaped his punishment in Gaul haven't made it to safety in Germania. And he needs to punish those Germans who dared send troops to support the rebels in the first place. So, find the Gallic rebels who have escaped across the Rhine and punish those who dared to support them. So he builds himself a new bridge. He leaves a strong force on either side and he marches into Germania. So far, same old, same old. His crossing is met by the Ubi. You remember them? Well, they have been the fanboys of Caesar since Ariovistus was routed and forced to escape into Germania. The Ubi send ambassadors to Caesar just as he was crossing. He hadn't even gotten his full force across when the Ubi show up. And they plead with him, quote, Neither had auxiliaries been sent to the rebelling tribe, nor had they, the Ubi, violated their allegiance. Spare them, lest in his common hatred of the Germans, the innocent should suffer the penalty of the guilty. They promised to give more hostages if he desired. Unquote. So the Ubi come in to Caesar and beg for their lives. Right? Hey, hey, we did not take part in that aid of the rebels. We were nowhere near that. That was not us, not at all. Please don't kill us. Here, have, have some more of our people. Just don't kill us. They know Caesar is out for blood. Well, at least he's claiming to be out for blood. And from his recent campaigns in Gaul, it's quite clear that he's kind of had enough of all these fights. And so 
the Ubi remind him of how loyal they have been. And to just please, 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 please don't kill them. Maybe to sweeten the pot. Maybe to help deal with internal Germanic politics. They do let on who sent those mercenaries. Who dared to defy Caesar. And risk his invasion. His wrath. You want to guess what tribe they happen to mention? It's the Swaby. Yep, that old song and dance. It's the Swaby who've been doing this. This large, most powerful tribe on the far side of the Rhine who happened to be the enemy of the Ubi. Yeah, apparently they are to blame. This is the same tribe that Caesar tried to bring down in his last crossing. Only to end up burning a few empty homes and calling it good. They're the ones who, according to the Ubi, have been scoffing at his power. And even now we're gathering their forces for a fight. Now, for Caesar, this probably wasn't that much of a surprise. But it was definitely frustrating. So, to prepare for his campaign, Caesar had the Ubi cleanse their land of all supplies for the Suevi. He didn't want anything there that the Swaby could use for food. This was in the hopes that the Swaby were going to have to come out and fight him, or else risk having their forces depleted by the lack of food. So, that makes sense, you know. You get rid of the food, you fast forward the timeline. The Swaby can't wait you out inside the Ubi's land. They've got to do something, and his hopes is that they'll attack. Technically, this does work. Swaby are forced to act. However, instead of launching an assault like Caesar hoped for, the Swaby just turn around and they march their army away from the Romans. And they hide in this massive forest called Bassinus, which formed a border between the Swaby and the Trusi. Here, the Swaby plan to wait and force Caesar to come to them to make the battle that Caesar's been trying to get all this time. Now, this forest offers a lot of advantages to the Germans. First of all, it's really hard to maintain a formation in a very thick woods. And that's what these woods were. They were heavy woods. The Germans could easily hide their forces throughout these woods and ambush the Romans as they were moving. Second, Caesar just stripped all the land in between him and the Swaby of supplies. So if he marches to attack the Swaby, then he has no supplies to rely on. He has to force the fight. He has to go on the offensive, which is not what he's wanting to do. But the Swaby have been successful. They have forced Caesar to make the next move. So what do you think he's going to do? Well, he's going to stop at this point... And he's going to start explaining the differences between the Gauls and the Germans. No joke. He sets us up for an epic battle where we don't know who's going to win. And then he goes talking about how different these Germans and Gauls are. Just, yeah, the Gauls, they have more government, but the Germans, they're more pure. And the Gauls, they have more to offer, but the Germans are really, really good warriors. And... 
here's how their women are, to da 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 da. Seriously, if you're an an author, don't do that. Don't don't ruin an epic fight by going, all right, now let's go talk about something else that's completely out of the ordinary. Why do you think he does this? I mean, overall, he he finishes the story with having very little good to say about the Germans other than the fact that they're really good fighters. So this is very mind-boggling until you think about that maybe... The reason why this is here is because this is what he was doing while he was waiting for the Swaby to act. While he's sitting on top of all the supplies he could gather and waiting for the Swaby to come to him. Maybe he's just sat there and he learned as much as he could about the Germans. Because to be fair, the Romans, they've had some interactions, but it's mainly been on the battlefield. This is the first time that he can actually observe them in semi-peace. So, while he's sitting, waiting for the Swaby to come, he's just sitting there and comparing the Gauls to the Germans. And when this little section is over, what does he do? Well, he goes home. He turns his army around and he leaves. There is no epic fight. That awesome setup of who's going to win in the forest. The supplies are low. Caesar going to go in. Or this way we're going to come to him, well, it never happens. Caesar just turns around and says, screw it, I give up. And he goes back across the Rhine. This one, he dismantles the far side of the bridge. He leaves up about two-thirds of the bridge. He dismantles the far side. And so Caesar's second punitive crossing ends with no fighting once again. The only damage he actually does would be to the Ubi because they had to host the Roman army and strip their land of all of the food. And probably got the Suebi really mad at them for trying to bring the Romans in. Now, the one thing he does do is that he leaves a garrison at the half of the bridge that he still has on the Rhine. There's still a way for the Romans to cross. And maybe he's trying to use it as... A symbol saying, hey, anytime we want, we finish this bridge, we're coming for you. Whatever, it's a half to two-thirds of a bridge. The Germans don't care. Now, is this successful? Has he proven his point? Are the Germans going to listen to him? Of course not. And it's Caesar's fault that they don't. You see, later on, when he's dealing with more revolts in Gaul... He invites everyone, Gauls, Germans, bandits, what have you, to attack a Gallic tribe, the Ubranes, who have been in revolt for quite a while. His hopes are that having these bandits, having these other tribes attack the Ubranes will weaken them to the point that they can no longer maintain their guerrilla warfare that they've been running. Guess, guess who's really eager to take up on this matter? Yeah, the Germans. You want us to raid? Sure, yeah, we'll raid for you. And one of the tribes that decides to cross is the Sigambri. Now, we've talked about the Sigambri before. They're the ones who took in the remains of the massacred tribes. They had tried to cross and deal with Caesar, and Caesar said, nope, taking too long, and just wiped them from the field. 
The Segambri were the ones who took in the fighters, the few people who survived that massacre. And so a lot of them have a beef with Caesar, especially when after that Caesar crossed the Rhine and burned a lot of their villages. Didn't catch anyone, but he did burn a lot of their villages. So the Segambri have crossed into Gaul with Caesar's permission, and they do start raiding the Ubrones. They, in fact, cross about 30 miles south of the Roman bridge. This is the bridge that we just talked about, the two-thirds one. That... So they cross just 30 miles south of this bridge, and they'll launch raids into the weakened Ubrones, just as Caesar wanted. But then they get told by some of the people that they capture that, why are you bothering us? We have no fight with you. In fact, we're currently fighting the Romans, who you hate. Why don't you attack them? In fact, why don't we show you where you can attack them? And so these prisoners inform the Sigambre that there is a large stash of supplies and wealth at Aruka. It's only lightly defended. And so if the Sigambre attack with Complete surprise, they can catch merchants and soldiers off guard, wipe them out, take the loot, and go home. This sounds like a really good idea. And so they do. They go, they find it, and they wait. And as soon as the opportunity presents itself, they attack. And they catch a lot of people outside of the fort. However, the soldiers inside the fort are able to hold them off. They almost don't. Caesar mentions that they were about to break. When parties of Roman troops who have been out foraging are making their way back towards the camp. Now, for the camp, this is really lucky. For the soldiers coming back, this is really bad timing. Because um, as they're coming back, the Germans notice them. And they just turn around and they attack them instead. They overwhelm them and annihilate these troops. But the reason why this is lucky for the camps is... Because after destroying these foraging forces, the Sigambri give up on the fort, on the wealth inside of it. Thinking that more Romans are going to show up and that they've had their revenge. They've gotten some of the supplies. They don't need to stick around. And so, they retreat back across the Rhine unmolested. And while they technically have dealt a blow to both the Romans and the Ubrones, Caesar admits that They've done more to help the Ubrones than hurt them. So Caesar's gambit across the Rhine for the second time, mark that off as a failure. And in this case, it is his fault. He invited them. Now, we're going to start changing from the German menace that has been plaguing Caesar and the Romans and trying to establish their own control in Gaul into the German saviors. And when I mean saviors, I mean saviors for the Romans, not for the Gauls. I'm sorry, Gaul. You're not going to like this. What we're going to be talking about is the role of the Germans in the largest and best chance revolt that the Gauls had. It's under a chieftain named Vercingetorix. Now, Vercingetorix had watched what happened with previous revolts. And have been able to get other leaders to work with him to unite nearly all of Gaul in this one. 
Now, the big issue with the previous ones is that not all of Gaul had been united behind it. It had been more regional-based for a lot of them. And if there were rebellions going on at the same time, they never really worked together. But now the Gauls realize that Caesar's not going to go away. He's not going to let them keep ruling their lands. He's turning it into a Roman territory. So Vercingetorix has been selected to lead this last-ditch effort of all of Gaul to rebel. And at first he does rather well. He is able to unite most of Gaul in this rebellion. And they do surprise the Romans quite effectively. And Caesar has to start reconquering lost territory. Now for the Romans, this is a big disaster. Any Roman citizen that has gone to set up a life in Gaul has had it ruined at this point. As the Gauls are in open rebellion, burning and killing Roman citizens. It's a disaster. And so Caesar has to literally go reconquer all of this. And he has to go put Vercingetorix down. So he gathers his army. And he marches back into Gaul for one more campaign. He begins his reconquest at Novidonium. At Novidonum, while negotiating the surrender at the city, he receives word that Vercingetorix has arrived. Or at least his cavalry has arrived. And they're pressing forward to launch an assault on the Romans before the city falls. And so in order to buy time to make sure that the city falls and to keep this enemy cavalry away, Caesar gathers his auxiliary force and launches it at the Gauls. Now the auxiliary force is the majority of his cavalry. His hopes is that they'll at least halt the Gauls. Maybe even turn the cavalry away completely. However, as the fighting continues, it's quite clear to Caesar that his cavalry is inferior to the Gauls. These are Spanish and Roman cavalrymen. They are not doing as well as the Gauls. So, in a last-ditch effort to turn the tide, to save his army, and to keep control of the city, Caesar sends in 400 German cavalry that he has held back in reserve this entire time. That have been right next to him this entire time. This 400 German cavalry smashes into the Gauls and routs them completely. And it forces Vercingetorix to turn his army around and retreat. Now, you're probably going, wait, what? There was not only Germans fighting for the Romans, but they were right next to Caesar and Caesar had been using them as a reserve? Yeah. Yeah. Caesar was relying on this German cavalry to protect him. To keep the enemy away. Now, why does he have this German cavalry to begin with? Where did it come from? Well, typically, Caesar's army relied on his allies in Gaul for cavalry. They usually supplied the majority of his cavalry force. And if all of Gaul is in rebellion, then Caesar's not 100% sure who he can trust of his old cavalry. So, in the old times, it was easy to get this cavalry force. He had a bunch of allies. Just choose a couple to supply you with cavalry, you're good to go. But with the full region in rebellion, you have to go look elsewhere. So, he does go to Spain. He does go to Italy. 
he goes to some the Roman regions and he gathers cavalry from there. But he knows that they're not as good as his old Gallic cavalry. But who is? Who has constantly routed Gallic cavalry in every fight against Caesar? Who's proven themselves to be the better horsemen? Well, what about those wonderful, pesky, annoying tribes that have been a thorn in Caesar's side this entire time? These warriors who have trained small ponies to stand by them while they leap into the fight. I'd say that's where you want to go for them. And so he does. Caesar reaches out to his allies across the Rhine. And he hires 400 of their warriors to serve as his personal cavalry force. They stay with Caesar in this battle, and he sends them in at the last minute as a last-ditch effort to turn the tide of the battle. They've been sitting this entire time out of it. They are his elites. However, this 400 is not enough for Caesar. As this campaign is starting to grow and he realizes the power that Vercingetorix can bring, he realizes that he's going to need more troops, and more cavalry in particular, especially after the poor effort that his auxiliary cavalry put in in the last battle. So once again, he calls across the Rhine for aid, and summons, quote, cavalry and the light-armed infantry who are accustomed to engage among them. On their arrival, as they were mounted on unserviceable horses. He takes horses from the military tribunes and the rest, nay, even from the Roman knights and veterans, and distributes them among the Germans. Unquote. Okay, think about that. He reaches out and he hires more cavalry. And as they arrive, he sees them on their ponies, and he's like, eh. You don't look as cool on these ponies. In fact, some of these ponies look like they might be in bad shape. And for Roman cavalry, ponies do kind of seem bad because they're not as fast. They don't look as good. They're not good on parades. But they're well trained. For the Germans, they're perfect. They've spent their life training them. That's not good enough for Caesar. So what does he do? Well, he takes his best trained horses from his best cavalry and leaders and gives it to these mercenaries. His best cavalrymen, the men who have been with him this entire campaign, lose their horses to these German mercenaries that have just been hired by Caesar. Because in Caesar's eyes, the German mercenaries are far superior and they deserve the better horses. He wants to give these warriors the best equipment he has to offer because they are supplementing his weakest portion of his army. Now, we're not sure if the Germans actually took to these horses. I mean, the Germans had spent their entire time training and working with ponies and to be stuck with larger and faster horses that have done rather poorly over the last campaigns may not have suited them. But we're not sure. I'd like to think that the Germans said, no thanks, we'll stick with our ponies. Thank you, though. Whatever the case, this influx of German mercenaries proves to be the savior for Caesar once again, as in the next class north of modern-day Dion, Caesar and Vercingetorix once again 
clash. And once again, it's unsure who's going to win. The Romans are barely being able to hold their ground. Caesar mentions that how he's constantly having to reform his forces and go and hold off weakened points in his line. While this is going on, the Germans assault on his right flank and they overwhelm the Gauls who are defending atop of a hill. They rout them completely. At this point, the Gauls are overwhelmed. They've lost their left flank. And Vercingetorix realizes that he's going to have to retreat and wait for aid. So he takes his army back to Alicia and plans to wait it out until more rebels can join him. Now, not all of his army escapes. As Caesar mentions that three noble sons of the rebelling Gallic tribes are captured by his cavalry and taken to him. A large portion of Vercingetorix's army is wiped out by the cavalry, who chases them down. And so Caesar, he arrives soon after Vercingetorix gets set up in Alicia and begins the last siege and battle of the Gallic Wars. Now, the siege is rather weird because it turns into a double siege. As Caesar's forces are surrounded by Gallic rebels who are coming to help Vercingetorix, who is surrounded by Caesar. Kind of weird. And really, the Romans should have failed. And they nearly did. Because the Gauls attack from both sides and nearly overwhelm the Roman defenders. However, quote, After fighting from noon almost to sunset without victory inclining in favor of either the Germans, on one side, made a charge against the enemy in a compact body and drove them back, unquote. The fighting, having lasted most of the day with no clear victor, is turned when the Germans charge in and break the Gallic reinforcements and breaking the spirit of the Gauls. Vercingetorix is forced to surrender. He can't hold out for much longer. And it ends Gaul's last hope of breaking Rome's rule. So, sorry Gaul. You can blame the Germans for a lot of that. For Rome, a town of success comes from the German mercenaries that saved his army three times in this campaign. The Germans prove their worth. And they'll come away with this campaign with Caesar's highest remarks and will be considered by nearly every commanding officer in that campaign as some of the best cavalry and warriors that they've seen. Now, with the end of this battle, with the fall of Vercingetorix, Caesar is done campaigning in Gaul. He'll turn around, he'll go to Italy, and he'll bring down the Republic. And our story won't get involved again with the Romans until after Julius Caesar's great-nephew, Augustus, is ruling as emperor of Rome. And that will do it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Again, I'm sorry that it was out late, but these things do happen. We are not going to have an episode next weekend, 
sorry, but I have to travel to Texas, and I'm not going to have time to record. So our next episode will be on June the 4th. Remember, if you'd like to support the show, you can go to our website at www.podcastongermany.com and you can donate so we can purchase books, maintain the database and website, and do projects such as our new logo. I hope you have a great week, and I will see you.